You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. Your guide on the side. I would suggest you forge more character. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. I mean, it's so true. We listen, we read. There's a bias, right? There's an inherent bias that we all have. And what it then does is it it actually impacts our selection process, right? So if I am biased against somebody and I, you know, I don't like Joe Blow from my office and I think he's just out to get me, then I'm not going to select all of the data that I notice about Joe Blow, just the data that supports my hypothesis that he's a jerk, that he's out to get me. I may not notice that he gives, you know, that he buys an extra lunch for somebody. I may not notice that. Or that he even invited me to his son's wedding. May not notice that. I only notice that he's out to get me. And the same is true when we think about um, our political candidates, when we think about the person running. Think about it. If you are a conservative in the back of your mind, are you not constantly thinking about Hillary's email scandals and how they're eventually going to tear her apart? And ironically, you don't even hear many articles about her email scandals in the liberal media. So why won't the liberal journalists pick up on it? And it's only those right-wing conspiracy groups. Bias. There's just bias. There's inherent bias. Is there an inherent bias uh, to the fact that Bernie Sanders is is older and we want to know how old he is? And does age really matter? Well, it does with Bernie. But is Rubio too young? It depends. If you're pro-Rubio, you want a young guy like Rubio. Come on. It's amazing. And one year, a candidate's age matters, and another year, it shouldn't matter. And we just heard a huge discussion a couple weeks ago about Hillary Clinton. She's, She's a yeller. She's a screamer. She's always screaming. You wouldn't say that if she was a man. So it's about bias. Everybody on earth has it. And... What uh, our great guest uh, was talking to us about is that scientifically we are going to make our argument not based on fact. We're going to first take our bias, our position, and then we're going to go look for the data that supports it. And the neat thing about data is you can make it say whatever you want it to say. That's why they call it the spin room. So after the New Hampshire election, you're going to see a bunch of spinners spinning (laughs) And so Hillary got close enough to Bernie that, oh, see, it wasn't a huge blowout. Or Bernie's pulling away, but of course he was going to. It's New Hampshire. He lives right by there. And we watch the spinsters. And more importantly, notice you. Notice yourself. What do you believe? And how does your bias impact the data you're choosing and the candidates you're favoring? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We thought that we would have... You know, a lot of time to focus. With all this technology, it would buy us more time, right? More time to be with the people we love, more time to be attentive and in tune. And in reality, what ends up happening is 
Not even close. We still don't have time. And so, and what I'm talking about is a simple idea of being in love, right? So when somebody thinks about being in love, they always think of the love part. Like the, the love is the, is the important part. You got to, as long as you have the love part, life is going to be great. But what I'm going to be focusing on is not the love part, but the in part. You know, the in. You got to be in love. It's kind of like being in debt. It's not the debt. It's being in the debt that's the problem. When you're inundated in the debt, ugh, it's the problem. But if we could be inundated in the love, then life would be great. We're just overwhelmed and so full of love for each other. So when we talk about it, I'm going to get into four different things to make sure that we get in. And our nature, really, uh, we've been told, is a great way to get in. And part of that is because it just automatically probably takes you to a whole different level of in vibration of life, I guess, because normally we're just kind of vibrating off of our screens and we're just feeling all of this intensity. In our marriages, in our relationships, four keys to get in the relationship. Number one, you got to tune into your partner. I've been married 25 years in a couple of days, and um, here's the deal. If I don't listen to my partner, if I don't pay attention to my partner, then I do not have a clue what her needs are, her wants are. You have got to learn, all of us have got to learn to tune in to what's really going on with our spouse. What are they really thinking? By the way, like you remember the old radio tuner where you had to tune in and dial in the radio? You might have to adjust it depending on where you were. But the minute you tuned in, it would eliminate a lot of the static. It would get rid of some of the interference. We've got to figure out and be present enough with our spouses to be able to tune into what they're really trying to say. And after 25 years, we should be really good at it, right? Well, only if you've been in. If you haven't been in, then you're not going to be great at being able to dial into what your partner's saying. Some solutions for that are very simply find ways to clarify what your partner is saying. Don't assume you know what they mean because they're saying certain words. Ask him, what do you mean by that? When you say that, I don't know, I'm worried about today. It's not going to go so well. Don't assume you know exactly what that means and don't just like answer it for them. What do you mean? What are you worried about? And let them explain more. Spend more time actually looking at your partner. You know, it's easier to tune into something that you're looking at, right? It might be easier to tune into somebody that you're listening to. So we can tune in with our eyes. We can tune in with our ears. We can tune in with our whole heart we got to tune into our partner. Another rule, allow your partner in. One of the biggest complaints I hear from uh, in marriage uh, coaching and relationship coaching is, I don't even feel like I know my husband. He doesn't even let me into his world. She asks you how your day is. You're like, fine, my day's fine. No more need to discuss it. Do you let your spouse in? Do they share what's really in their heart and in their mind? Do they feel safe enough to share it? Because if they don't feel safe enough to share it, they're not going to share it. Are you a, a safe spouse or will, you know, you get laughed at? We've got to allow our partners into our fears, our beliefs, our concerns, and that means you've got to be able to hear it. Uh, there was some interesting research done of women that say they want to hear what's going on in their husband's heart, what they're thinking in their mind, And as soon as the husband shares it, almost inevitably, the wife's like, oh, I can't believe you're thinking that. You always think that. I know. My bad. 
if you want your partner to share more, you've got to be able to handle what they bring, and you've also got to be able to make it safe. Another rule is stay more involved in each other's lives. A complaint I hear all of the time is it doesn't seem like my partner's even into the family. They're not even paying attention. They're never involved, which means, Dad, you need to help more. Be there for homework. Help your kids do their assignments. Run the carpools more. Pick up the team. Drive the team. Be involved. Also, can I just suggest watch out for how we do our distribution of chores and of um, division of labor. You will make these divisions when you're young, maybe naive. The wife does everything on the inside of the house. The husband does everything on the outside of the house. Be careful, ladies, because there's because we have lighting and technology inside the house. You can end up working all night till midnight, but we can only mow the lawn until it's dusk. If you want a fair and equal division of labor, we're going to have to learn to talk about it. And then last but not least, you got to touch. you got to be in touch with each other. If you remember, that's where a lot of the chemicals started in the first place. So make sure you're touching. Uh, and you can touch, you know, in non-sexual ways. You can hold hands. You can hug. You can kiss in front of the kids and drive them crazy. That's the reason we're in love, right? Keep in touch. That's one of the goals. Stay involved. Allow your partner in and tune in to your partner. That's the way you stay in love. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. And the health benefits of spirituality. So I see it all the time with my clients. They come in and uh, I, I, teach a, I teach a basic concept of body, mind, spirit. That everything we do, we are going to either have to orient from our body, our mind, or the way we think, or our spirit. Our spirit, I teach, basically knows peace. The example I always give, um, like adults, about the spirit is when you're holding your baby, you're in the middle of the night, you're not, you know, thinking he's going to be president or anything. You're just calm. You're rocking your baby to sleep. And you just feel love and peace and just, you just feel joy, right? To me, that's the power of the spirit. Spirit uh, is, and, and again, and she described it so beautifully, Dr. Lisa Miller did, spirit is, is the essential form of who we all are. And every major religion is basically going to understand that there's some spiritual part of us. That spirit's always operating. I believe it's inside of each of us. Then we all have minds and we have bodies. The mind, the, so the spirit brings the peace. The mind wants to be popular. The mind wants to be pretty. The mind is the identity we've all set up for ourselves. So we come to this earth, and when you sit there and you look at that cute baby, and that baby's you know two months old or five months old or ten months old, and you're like, oh, you're so beautiful. Look at your eyes. You're so smart. You're the smartest baby. Oh, you throw that ball so hard. All of those different things start to create an identity for this child. And eventually that child is going to think that it is all of these things, blue-eyed, blonde hair, whatever, throws a great curveball. But the problem is that's not who you are spiritually, right? So there's a little bit of a discord between who you are spiritually and who your mind thinks you are. You might even just think you're a, a guy or a gal, or you might think you're smart or you're not. Oh, yeah, I'm not very smart. I didn't do very well on the ACT. Failed the ACT. So all of a sudden, because you failed the ACT, your mind thinks that's who you are. Now, do you think your spirit cares about your ACT? Your spirit knows that you're this being that's been living and has existed and you're powerful beyond measure. Yeah, but I'm fat. That's my mind telling me I'm fat. Or I can orient from my body. And my body basically wants pleasure 
or pain or procreate. That's pretty much what it brings or the party. What's for dinner? So sometimes we come to life and, and we let our bodies, our desires, d- direct us. Sometimes if I have fear, my body might feel fear because I've got to go talk to my boss about whatever. So my body creates chemistry. My mind makes up a story. Yeah, he's not going to like me because of this and this and this, which creates complexity. But at any point, we can get back to our spirit. So however you get to spirit, some meditate, some read scriptures, some will sing a hymn, some will just think of their God. Imagine your God just holding you as you're, you know, walking in with you to go talk to your boss. If you have to go in with your God, what on earth is your boss going to do that will matter? You can still feel peace, right? So body, mind, spirit. And I'm telling you, I teach this all the time to people and they come in and once they can start to recognize if they're feeling, you know, body, mind or spirit, Then we can get back to the spiritual core, I call it. We've got to get back to that spiritual sense of who we all are. And when we do, we feel peace instantly. Now, it doesn't change everything, right? It just changes how you see everything. If you just lost your spouse to cancer, you're going to probably have to operate at all three of those levels. Your body will miss that person. It will ache to be next to that person. It will create major pain chemistry. Your mind will start creating major fears and convolutions like, oh, am I going to be able to make it? I don't know if I have enough money. I don't even know where the insurance is. What if I can't find somebody else? What if I what if nobody wants to be around me? Our fears start to come up. Fears don't exist in your spirit. They don't even exist in your body. Your body's going to respond to a stimulus. It's not just going to automatically feel the fear. Something's got to kick in, right? That might be the mind. So the mind starts to kick in and create stories for you. So a lot of times our grieving is us trying to manage our mind. A lot of times our fear, the most difficult things on this earth tend to be, I believe, conjured by the mind. So body, mind, spirit, we're doing it all the time. Coaching 101, the number one secret, let me tell you. You don't need to get in spirit. You already are in spirit. You just need to notice where you are. And the minute you notice if you're in body, mind, or spirit... You're already moving to spirit because the only thing that notices its mind is the spirit, right? The mind doesn't notice itself. That's it thinks that that's who you are. But when you start looking at yourself like, are you kidding me? I'm making such a big deal over something that's so stupid. The minute you're starting to think that way, you're already moving into your, your spirit. Again, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. We're not just human beings having a spiritual experience. It's it's the most powerful tool I've ever seen. I have a son that's in Mexico serving a a mission for the LDS Church in northern Mexico, and we we got to talk to him on Mother's Day. And he just sat there and spoke spiritually to my other son that's about to go on a mission. And it was the most amazing spirit-to-spirit conversation you've ever seen. And I could see my son's mind spinning because, oh, he's so scared to go out and doesn't know what he wants to do. And My other son just basically shared his testimony, his belief, and the Spirit talked to Spirit. It was the most incredible thing. Interesting stuff, folks. Hoping to help you see the good in the world. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, Apple recently released some new products with features. Among those uh, were a new iPad Pro and a new iPhone. These products come with uh, many, you know, new gadgets, one of which is a new lighting technology called Night Shift. Night Shift changes the lighting on the phone to produce less blue light so as to help users go to sleep easier. But uh, will it really work? Is blue light really that big of a problem? And did Apple in their, you know, their new advancement just solve the age supposedly old problem of the blue light that emanates off of our little uh, devices keeping us awake? We'll find out. Our guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Goodfellow, Associate Professor and Assistant Dean for Curriculum and Assessment at Illinois College of Optometry. He joins us now live from Illinois. Dr. Goodfellow, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks so much. Great to have you here. Hey, what do you think? Uh, Talk to us about light and blue light. I don't don't quite get uh, the full spectrum of light and and its impact on us. And I guess we need to know that to figure this out about uh, Apple's new device. Well, light is, uh, you know, daylight and the sun is is long been um, an indicator for all of us, um, even before the age of having clocks and and things like that. Um, when the sun comes up, our it tells our body it's time to wake up and get ready for the day. And when it gets dark outside, that also kind of tells us that it's time to uh, to go to sleep and get rested for the next day. And so, um, you know, the, the natural cycle of sunlight is is something that kind of uh, is kind of built into um, you know the way our our bodies work and so the, the whole idea of circadian rhythms which is kind of you know the body has a clock that kind of um, is important to kind of uh, keep on a schedule and and we know whether it's whether we fly in an airplane and have jet lag or we stay up too late working on a project or things like that but anytime we disrupt that cycle or that that rhythm um, you know things kind of get out of whack we don't feel as well we're more prone to get sick um, you know the, the, we're just not really designed to, to just be awake all the time so it's important to kind of keep that cycle and rhythm and so light certainly plays an important role on that um you know, there's still a lot that's really not not known about you know how all of that um, works, but we know that it's um, the wavelengths of, of light that come at us that um, enter our eyes and give us uh, gives our brain some feedback about uh, about when we we need to get up and when we go to sleep. Because mm. we have uh, you know we have blue light, I guess it, it's it's glowing off of our iPhones and our iPads and our television screens. And um, but we also have LED lights, and I guess these the impact of these I, we're having more and more uh, blue light in, in kind of just our day to day purchases and in our day to day lives. Is that true than than ever before? That that is certainly true, and so. Um you know, researchers have found that, you know, when we, we think about how the sun kind of keeps us regulated, that, you know, sunlight is made up of um, all the colors of the rainbow, as, as we kind of remember from our, our elementary school days. Um, and um, in addition to infrared light, as well as ultraviolet light, all of those uh, forms of, of the electromagnetic spectrum are coming at us from the sun. But researchers have really identified that it's kind of that blue area of the spectrum, that blue or purple, right? up against um, before it becomes ultraviolet rays, that that blue light is kind of the one that it does the regulation for us. And that's mm. kind of what triggers us to to um, 
go, you know, go to bed and wake up uh, on, on a schedule. And, you know, for the longest time, our main source of blue light was really from, from the sun. And um, the, you know, even the light indoor electric light bulbs um, that have, you know, powered our country for a long time, they had kind of a yellowish cast to them. You know, the old incandescent old-fashioned light right. bulb, it was more kind of the warm colors, kind of the, the, the yellowish. And so blue light was not really included in the in the, the spectrum of light that was coming off of these older type of, of lights. And so that's kind of why they had mm. a yellowish hue to them. So being exposed to, to that type of light doesn't kind of trigger the mechanism in our brain to kind of stay awake. Um, but you're right. All of the, the new devices, the LED lights, the compact fluorescent lights, um, a lot of the more modern lighting now is more kind of the cool white lighting. It has more kind of a – it resembles more of the, the sunshine, you know, the, the kind of that white uh, mm-hmm. or that cooler uh, color. But because, you know, what makes that have more of a white or a cooler color and not be as yellow as the old-fashioned light bulbs is that they're including more blue in the spectrum of, of what those lights emit. And so we are kind of being bombarded all day long with, um, with blue lights in our offices, blue lights um, in LEDs, um, and blue lights in all these um, devices that we stare at all day long and, you know, staring at our, our phone even right before we go to sleep. All of those, those blue lights are kind of sending signals to our brain to, hey, it's day. We should stay up late, uh, keep working kind of a feeling. Hmm. Is it um – it's it's so funny. I went and they're incentivizing people, you know, to buy these LED lights because they're more they're, uh, they're they're friendlier to the environment. So I went and bought a bunch of them, not necessarily knowing that there's kind of the warmer light. I mean, I knew it, but I didn't I couldn't discern while I was at the store. And I bought a bunch of the bluer uh, LED bulbs um, and you know put them in our upstairs. And then at night, it looked like I don't know. It kind of looked like a landing strip. Um, or like a marijuana grow site um, in my upstairs because it's such a different light. And I real I noticed just in my own energy, um, you know, I feel better in a warmer light than just these bright blue lights. Is that what is it doing to me? Yeah, I mean, I think. I mean, for one, you know, there's not a lot of research, you know, out there to show, you know, the long-term effects of these type of lights. And so, you know, lighting is kind of a subtle difference. I guess I don't want to paint the picture that, oh, my goodness, you got to get those out of your house. These are very yeah, right. dangerous or things like that. But you're right. There are kind of these subtle, um, you know, one, sometimes it could just even be a subjective preference of just, you know, the, the way that your room feels. You know, we know that color in general um, changes the way – that we see the world and, um, you know, and, you know, the, the lighting is a very important choice um, that certainly designers talk about, um, you know, the type of lighting that they put in, in grocery stores or in museums is chosen for a very specific reason uh, right. to highlight what's there and to make people feel a certain way. And so um, you're right if, um, you know, the, the choices of lighting that you have at home can really kind of change the way you see the world and kind of feel. And sometimes it almost can be, you know, walk into a room, it's almost too bright or just kind of just, you know, overstimulating sometimes. And sometimes kind of a, a warmer um, light can be a little bit more comforting, mm. um, especially at nighttime. You know, one of the things about LED lights is they are just so powerfully bright. And, um, you know, you know the the unless you have things on a dimmer or things like that, the, the amount of light that we need, um, especially later in the day, um, 
you know needs to, is is often less even when you're using you know your computer screen for example and during the day when it's pretty light outside you might need to have that screen very bright so that it shows up in contrast to the rest of the world but at night that same screen brightness would just seem way overpowering and so you have to kind of uh, bring down the the uh, illumination a little bit to right. make, uh, feel comfortable and and thus uh the topic here um so Night Shift was then created, I guess, or engineered by Apple's team so that these new devices and all of our iPhones, iPads, they now have the ability, I guess, to remove the blue light and and make it a more yellow light. Is that what they're doing? Yeah, essentially they're basically just um, adding an algorithm to their screen you know, output to kind of remove or turn off the pixels that are emitting more of the blue spectrum. And the idea is is that if if it's the blue spectrum, which artificially causes people to, um, you know, their brains to kind of experience daylight and awake feelings, if they turn off those pixels, um, it would allow people to, to use their device closer to bedtime um, without necessarily having the overstimulation of, of, of you know, being awake. So the idea is is that, um, you know, hopefully people can turn off their device and get to sleep in in a better way. Yeah, I mean, you're the optometrist and uh, or a professor, and um, I'm thinking that um, all we'd have to really do is just shut our eyes. <laughs> you're right, <laughs> and and, uh, and and just you know. Our eyes are really not designed to be staring at computers or even books, paper books, um, for, you know, all this time. You know, our eyes, the default focus of our eyes is really for far away viewing. And, uh, you know, so, you know, our eyes are meant to kind of zoom in and focus a little bit on something up close and then kind of go back to their default focus Mm. looking far away. So, um you know, when we kind of lock our focus up close, when we read or we use a computer or hold an, uh, an iPad or a smartphone up to our eyes for just many, many hours, you know, that alone causes a lot of strain. It really, you know, w- whether there's blue light there or not um, is not necessarily the, the the magic answer. But you're very right. Just, you know, giving your eyes a break oftentimes can be um, helpful. <laughs> go to sleep. Making, yeah, go to sleep. You know, it's uh, – and, and, you know, and, and some of the re- the researchers are also not clear about, you know, what you know what you do before bedtime um, does impact a lot on how quickly you can fall asleep. You know whether you exercise too much or you have too much caffeine or whether you know you you've, uh, you're excited about something. And so there's some research to say you know what using a smartphone um, before bed is just stimulating your mind and keeps you kind of active. Maybe it's not so much the blue light that's keeping you right. awake. It's just the idea of just being kind of stimulated before bed. Which, you know, if you're not using your phone, if you're kind of in quiet meditation or you're just kind of, kind of, you know, preparing mentally for the, the next day and kind of ramping down, um, that that might be the key to, to having a better night's sleep so much than, than the blue light itself. Yeah. I mean, Jeffrey, when I grew up, you know, it was about counting sheep. <laughs> right? And now we're like playing some bejeweled game. App. 
Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's messed up. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Goodfellow, who is a uh, an associate professor and assistant dean for curriculum and assessment at Illinois College of Optometry. He's walking us through uh, what I'm calling the blue light special. You can also find it at Kmart. And um, what we are talking about, though, is this uh, blue light, the impact that it has on us, and Apple's device, Night Shift. Does it really take care of that? When we come back, we'll continue the discussion. We're also going to talk about eye strain. The reality is we're straining to see stuff. More and more people are um, it's, uh, are having their vision impacted by all this screen time, as, as the good doctor was just telling us. We're going to just learn the tools, the information you need to uh, use your phones and your new technology in a healthier way. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I love that song. Hmm. Yeah, bright, blue light, sunshiny day. Welcome back, folks. Today we are talking about blue light and uh, not the blue light that you saw at Kmart when you'd get a discount, but the blue light that is on your phone, your iPads. It's everywhere, folks. And in fact, uh, Apple has created what they're calling Night Shift, where you set a little timer and it Whatever time, sundown, boom, you, you, uh, they remove the blue light spectrum, I guess, uh, from the phone, and you have a different, like, I guess, more yellow light that uh, supposedly would impact your sleep less, your melatonin levels less. And, you know, we wanted to see if, are they, is this for real? So we've been asking and talking with Dr. Jeffrey Goodfellow, who is an associate professor and assistant dean at uh, the uh, Illinois College of Optometry. He joins us now from Illinois. Welcome back, Dr. Goodfellow. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Matt. Talk about the, um, uh, the I guess the strain is a big deal, right? Because I, I've always wondered what these phones are doing to us um, because we're, we, like you were saying, we have this, this phone a foot from our head, our face. We're focusing at a level and... It's staying there for hours with light probably that we're not used to. And it's is it impacting us? What does it do to our eyes? Well, there does seem to um, be information that suggests that, you know, all of these um, near devices may be taking a toll on our eyes. You know, there's um, the long-term toll is kind of difficult to determine. Uh, I'll start with the short-term um, and I think um, there is lots of information to show that um, eye strain is definitely something that is um, common, as well as dry eye, irritable eyes, headaches, those type of things, which definitely come from us using our eyes in an up-close environment for just extended periods of time. Um, and as we had mentioned before, you know, our, our eyes are really designed, um, you know, out of the gate to be looking far away. And so um, we have uh, the ability inside of our, our eyes for our lens to kind of change its shape. And there's a little muscle in the eye which can kind of um, change the focus of the lens to allow us to see up close. Right. It's really designed to just do that briefly and then kind of go back to looking far away. So when we kind of lock our focus in up close, um, it definitely can cause all kinds of, uh, you know, um, 
you know, problems. And I think the other thing, too, is, is that, um, you know, all of our eyes are different, and some people have um, eyes that may not be perfectly aligned, or they may have, a, you know, a f- one eye may not focus as well as the other, or there may be other underlying things that under normal circumstances, um, you know, the person's able to compensate for those and be fine. But when you put their eyes under intense strain by looking at a computer all day or reading a book for, you know, five hours without taking a break, all those kind of things, um, it may, those little problems can start to become a big deal and mm. people may start to, to notice, um, you know, problems with headaches and uncomfortable vision. But I guess we're, we are newer to the blue light than we are, I guess, the UV light, uh, right? I mean, because the UV light, that that does cause other issues like cataracts, and I guess we don't know what the blue light does yet. Uh, that's a fair statement. I think um, researchers have, have long known that ultraviolet um, light, um, it, it can be damaging to all um, body tissues, and certainly um, we're all well informed about wearing sunscreen on a, on a sunny day, and, and um, as... Um, Eye care professionals, everybody has been, you know, told for many, many years now, wear sunglasses outside. You need to protect your eyes because, um, you know, the front of your eyes can get sunburned just like any other structure of the eye. And um, you're right, the inside of the eye, the cataracts of, um, that can happen to the, the lens inside the eye, um, as well as, you know, more serious things like macular degeneration, mm. some real um, serious problems that, you know, after many, many years of exposure to ultraviolet light, um, that damage kind of builds up cumulatively relatively over time. And, you know, um, we have some of our elderly patients that end up with a lot of these, um, you know, pretty, you know, serious, you know, eye problems that causes them to lose vision and, and kind of function in life. Um, so, you know, we, we are often told about, you know, protect your eyes from, from UV radiation um, to protect those things. But more recently, um, you know, blue light has now also been implicated in kind of causing some of those things as well. And and if you think about the the, the whole spectrum of uh, you know UV light gradually blends into purple and blue light, which gradually you know blends into you know the the, the green, orange, and yellow, and the reds, and gradually fades into infrared. It's a, it is a a, a spectrum and mm. it's a slow change from one. If you can imagine, even the rainbow is not just pure red and then a clear bright right. switches to orange. It's a fading. And so, you know, ultraviolet, which we know is damaging, um, is right up against kind of these blue and purple lights. And so there isn't, you know, a, a real line in the sand where this is the, the, um, you know, with the yeah. cutoff of where light is, you know, where radiation is damaging and light right next to it is perfectly safe and healthy. It's a slow change. And so like a lot of things in life, um, you know, everything kind of in moderation in that um, some of these blue um, lights, al- although they're not as dangerous as, as some of the ultraviolet spectrum, because they're up against the short wavelengths of, of UV light, they also now have been implicated in having some, some properties that in the long term, can kind of damage our eyes over time. Yeah. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Goodfellow um, about uh, about the blue light that's coming off of your phones, your iPads, and uh, I mean it's it's really it's it's everywhere anyway. But now we're actually just pushing it into our faces from about a foot away. Uh, Dr. Goodfellow, let me ask you this because I've noticed that when I am around people that are on their phone. 
uh, and I want you to tell me if there's a correlation. Um, a lot of these people seem to become antisocial. They become incredibly boring people that don't talk to you and just look at their screen. Does anything? Does any of that have anything to do with the light? Probably not. Okay. Darn it. <laughs> Probably not. I, w- I wish I could, uh, even for my own kids and all the, the students that I get to work with, I think our yeah. entire society has really uh, been easily distracted. For I, sure. It's like making zombies. It seems like this light generates – it's the zombie apocalypse. It's the way the zombie gets into us. Yeah. Well, and I mean, when we kind of laugh, and, and although I can say that it probably has nothing to do with, with your eyes, I mean, there is kind of a long-term – cumulative effect socially on I think our culture and our society right. um, when when uh, young people are trained from a very early age to be intently um, engaged in their device and I think that there is some literature out there to show that you know some of our younger people are not maybe uh, as adept at communicating um, with one another as they once were from all these different things that's the key too because we're not we don't have long-term research right we've only been doing this for a decade or so and um, I mean, it's it's going to be interesting to see what really happens there. Talk to us about some solutions. What are things that I should be doing uh, to make sure that uh, my eyes are protected, that I'm not, you know, you know, losing my nearsightedness or my farsightedness? What what are the precautions we should take? Well, probably the the first thing is is just to be um, smart in the way that you use your eyes. Um, so certainly. Um, you know, when you are um, reading and doing things up close, and don't get me wrong, I mean, I need I use a computer all day at my work. Um, I certainly have a smartphone in my pocket, which gets me around town, and, and I spend a lot of time on that as well. But the, probably the more important thing is is just uh, you know, the American Optometric Association has what they call the 20-20-20 rule, which is, you know, Every 20 minutes when you're working on a computer or smartphone, give your eyes a 20-second break by looking at something 20 feet away. In other words, just these periodic breaks where you return your eyes kind of to their default focus far away is just enough to kind of give them a break, relax those muscles in the eye, and then after that, you're kind of ready and refreshed again to to have another 20 minutes of work. So just, you know, just periodic breaks and go a long way into kind of reducing a lot of the eye strain and some of the things that go on. Um, the other thing is is to to blink your eyes frequently when you're using when you're reading when you're using a computer, smartphone, iPad, those type of things. Um, we know, um, you know, the research data has shown that you know our our normal blink rate that we just our eyes automatically blink without us thinking about it decreases um, considerably when we when we stare at a near device <laughs> and we hold our eyes open longer and yeah. so uh, because of that they um, are more prone to getting dried out strained so even just being conscious about blinking your eyes frequently and whether it's you know at the end of every line or uh, certain paragraphs, things like that, you just kind of blink frequently. That can also help too. And then I think probably, you know, most important after that is just protecting your eyes. So making sure that um, you wear sunglasses outside, making sure that you wear sports glasses or eye protection when you're playing sports or or doing anything, working out in the garage and, and things like that to protect your eyes. And then probably the last thing, 
would be um, to make sure that you, you get a regular eye exam um, at least once a year to just um, make sure your eyes are healthy, uh, make sure they can see well, make sure the eyes are well aligned, make sure that the pressure in the eyes is okay, make sure the vision is good. Um, there are so many things, um, like anything with the body, if there's a problem, you want to know about it early um, rather than it, before it becomes a problem that's difficult to fix. And so um, regular eye care also goes a long way to kind of making sure your eyes are in uh, tip-top shape. Yeah. Uh, great advice. Uh, let's do one more question because I can hear somebody out there saying, why are you picking on technology? So <laughs> so help me with this one, doctor, and just you, you can make it as easy or as hard as you'd like. Um, when it comes to the sun, we shouldn't stare into the sun, right? For sure. Okay. Ba- bad for our eyes. Bad, bad. Okay, so we've covered the spectrum. Uh, Don't look at technology too long. Use all of these other techniques. Like that blinking thing makes sense, right? People aren't Mm -hmm. blinking as much, yet you're taking in all this light. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Like it seems counterintuitive. It seems like you would naturally blink more, but 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 we don't. And protect the eyes. Look kind of at a mid-range area. These are great, great tools for all of us. Dr. Jeffrey Goodfellow, thank you so much for your insight and – your insight, no pun intended, but we appreciate it, and we are going to uh, take your advice to heart. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Have a great day, Matt. Take care. Again, Dr. Jeffrey Goodfellow, and uh, he's he's the real deal, folks. When you think about it, you're not blinking, but you're looking looking and staring at something, and your brain's like, yeah, let's, let's blink less. That's why they're drying out. If your eyes crack and you know make weird noises when you blink... You need to blink more. You need some more fluid in there. We'll take a break, folks. Some advice from the other doctor, the non-optometrist, ophthalmologist. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I go get my eyes checked every two years. And here's the crazy thing. I go and, you know, they do the test, that awkward moment where you're like, A or B, B, A, A, B, B, A, A, B. And I always get nervous about that. But... um Then there's this moment where they give you the glasses and you are like, holy cow, things are sharp. I got my first pair of glasses about a year ago. Yeah. And my depth perception was so messed up that I was tripping over everything. (gasps) Is that what it was? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. That was embarrassing. Yeah, it wasn't here, so. Ben, don't deny. Um so doesn't it make sense that you should value yourself enough to go have your eyes checked? Right? We go to the doctor. You're supposed to get a checkup, I guess, annually or whatever uh, when you're at my age. <laughs> and uh, we should we should do that. But you should also get your eyes checked and wear protective lenses, wear sunglasses when you're out there, um, outside – and yet we don't. And it might just be because we don't – I guess we don't value ourselves enough. 
But as a family now that uh, with my parents, my extended family suffering from macular degeneration, from cataracts and um, and uh, glaucoma and other eye issues, it's a scary, scary thing. You lose your eyes. Can you imagine not being able to see or only being able to see out of the corner of your eye? So you're always kind of looking to the corner. Oh, that's hard. Um, that's a hard way to live. And not to mention the fact that people are going to be totally freaked out by you sometimes when you're always looking out of the corner of your eye. It's hard stuff. And so let's let's just learn just information, right? And value yourself. Value yourself enough to uh, take care of yourself. Now, here's a story of a man not, I guess, valuing himself enough. Um, what is the worth of a soul? Depends what soul. Oh, Ben. No, it doesn't. Everyone's soul is in, is is has no value. It's 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 priceless. Man, depends on the soul. It depends. Um, police say a Kentucky man lied about being kidnapped, and then he demanded a ransom from his relatives. So he pretended to be kidnapped, demanded a ransom, and. The sad truth is the ransom was $150. So we've got your son. We've got him. We will kill him unless you pay a ransom. Oh, boy. Really? How much do you want for little for little Austin? We want $150. <laughs> is that all? Yeah, just $150. That's a little too much. And a bag of Oreos. Well, I don't know if I have $150. Let me check my purse. Hang on a sec. Leroy, do you have $150 so that they don't kill Austin? No, let him kill him. Austin M. Kaler's family members told police the 20-year-old told them he was being held prisoner. Police said they tracked down Kaler to a house, and he tried to run before admitting to the hoax. Kaler told police that the ransom had to be delivered by a certain time or he would be killed. And that he planned to use the ransom money to buy drugs, the police said. 150 bucks. Let me just give you a, a little advice out there. We call this segment Coaching the Con. Um, if you're going to claim ransom, you might want to value yourself more than 150 bucks. Well, just to lead off suspicion... Yeah, it's like pricing things. If you price it too low, right. it's you're gonna be suspicious right. of the product, right? Yeah. So what you might also want to do, if you really want to get it done, is do what the pros do: give them a range, give them three choices. For five hundred bucks, we will return him without a problem. For one hundred and fifty bucks, no hands. We'll return him handless. Fifty bucks. We'll give you a shoe. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll give you his wallet back so that you can do what you got to do. Anyway, interesting. People, the worth of a soul is great. Definitely more than 150 bucks. We'll take a break. This uh, is the Matt Townsend Show. Join us next hour. More tools, more information to help you get through this crazy thing called life and do it with a smile. We'll be back. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. I would suggest you forge more character. Your guide on the side. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. A little coach's corner for you here. Um, as we've been learning about the value of time, right? You want your time... Uh, and those people that chose time over money, they showed a, a higher sense of happiness. And uh, the researcher, Ashley Willans, was telling us that they do show a higher level of happiness depending on what they go do with their time, right? And one of the things she kept mentioning over and over and over was the fact that if they go and spend it with people they care about, with the relationships that matter to them, then it matters. So time matters, um, but it's not the time that's going to just make you happier. It's what you do with the time. It's the choice of how you spend your time. And so um, in the Coach's Corner, I wanted to just give you some ideas of maybe how to strengthen the time that you have with the people that you love, right? Because, you know, have you ever gone on a trip with your family and you thought, oh, wow, when's this thing going to end? I mean, I love them and everything, but we've got three more days of this trip. So here's some rules of just uh, how to hopefully find the time and actually spend the time that you find to make a little healthier relationship. One thing, number one, is find the compliment, not the critique. Um, If all of a sudden in the middle of this time that we're spending together, what we're doing is just critiquing each other. Whether the critique is out loud or not, if I'm sitting there thinking of, man, why does my wife do this or why are my kids like this, and that's where my head goes, eventually that's where my heart will go, right? My thoughts are going to lead to my feelings. If I am thinking critique, I'm going to feel negative. And if I feel negative, I'm eventually going to act it out. I might just speak it out. You guys are lazy. Or I might act it out and just start slamming doors and whatever. So make sure that when we are together, we try to find compliments and use more positive language. If anything, have at least more positive thoughts. And Because and, remember, your language is going to communicate that you care or not. Um, another rule is lose the excuses. Uh, I taught time management for years with um, the industry leader, Franklin Covey, for years doing it. And in and out, heard every excuse you could imagine about why people don't make time in their lives and for for important things. But now we're finding out by the research, whether you make the time or not, you're going to pay for it because it's going to be your happiness. It also could be your health. You may have a great excuse for why you don't exercise, but in the end, it's just still your body, right? So it it's not about more time. If I gave you another day, you would use it the exact same way you choose to use every other day that's free to you. It's so careful of your excuses because nobody buys them anyway except you. And uh, if you really want to have some peace of mind and some happiness, you're going to eventually have to choose it. Another rule that uh, comes from the book First Things First is uh, a simple – it's a time management book – is the simple idea of make sure you're focusing on the important, not the urgent – Most of us as humans spend our lives reacting to urgent things in our lives. If the phone rings, you're going to pay attention to it, right? If you keep getting text messages that keep pinging your your device, you will look down at those text messages. But just because something is urgent doesn't equate to it always being important. 
All things that ring in this world are not equally important. And many of the things that are most important in our lives aren't urgent until you've lost them. Like your health is always important, but it's not urgent until they're calling 911. Then it's like, I shouldn't have done that taco cleanse for 30 days. It's killing me. Important things sometimes are not urgent until it's too late. So make sure you're asking yourself a very simple question every day. What's the most important thing I can do today to strengthen my relationship? Or what's the most important thing I can do today to have a positive impact at work? Ask the important question, not the what's the most urgent thing that needs to be done. And last but not least, sit down with the people you love and formalize time. As Ashley told us earlier, plan your time ahead. You already know three weeks from now you have a free afternoon on Saturday. It's already there. So go put on the calendar next Saturday. We're going on a date. Plan ahead. By planning ahead, you'll actually always have time with the people you love. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Is your job going to just be outsourced? I mean, will there be a day where the radio talk show hosts will just be outsourced? I mean, it already is in the DJ world, right? They just put in all the songs and a computer will play the song for you. I think that's going to be the first job that's outsourced. Well, I actually think board operators will be the first job that's outsourced. No, there's a certain talent in art that goes behind board operating. No, see, no. See, the difference with the talk show host is that we have to know how to work with people. You, for example... Benny, you don't have to work with people. You don't have to communicate. Yeah, it's, it's hard. We, we wish you would. Don't get me wrong. We actually wish you would talk. But by the way, that was interesting. Yesterday, I, I left the confines of my office where I like to just hibernate and came out where the people are. And you were out there with – you were out there and all of the producers were talking to you. You were like involved in a, in a conversation. I know. It was like a real conversation. It was... It was like the first time, I think, in a year that I've seen you do that. Yeah. What's wrong? I... Are you okay? Isn't this supposed to be good? No, I think it's fantastic. Oh, okay. But it's like, I'm just wondering, are you sick? Um... Was there... Did you need a ride? It's terminal. <laughs> so but... Were you, were you looking for a ride from somebody? Is that why you were talking to him? Well, Normally, you don't talk to the girls. Well, I, I was looking for a ride, but they all said no. So I thought I'd just... Yeah. Keep talking to let me them. Just, let me just tell you. If you ever need a ride, Terry's here. Oh, okay. Terry will take you wherever you I, need to go. I don't know. He Sometimes he has like a really stone cold look on his face. Yeah, that's Terry. Yeah. That's just how Terry rolls. Well, will he? You know what we ought to get you? Uh, you've heard about those um, self-driving cars. Yeah. Did you hear now they're self-driving strollers? Have one. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't share that. Um, Smart B is marketed as the first intelligent stroller in the world. It uses motion tracking sensors to follow you wherever you go, allowing for hands-free strolling. Isn't that great? So you just put your baby in the stroller and then you just walk and then the stroller follows you. That would be great. Sounds dangerous. (laughs) You're a baby. Um, Like all great ideas nowadays, the Smart Bee is currently in its crowdfunding phase on the Indiegogo website. However, if all goes correctly, the stroller will be easily uh, will easily be the most decked out baby carrier ever created. 
In addition to an electric motor that will assist in movement, the stroller will also feature wireless speakers so your baby can rock out a bottle warmer. Are you kidding? A rocker and three retractable canopies. Plus, the, the, you can have a temperature-controlled bassinet. It'll only cost about $3,200. So once again, the rich and their babies get to stay warm while the rest of us are freezing. <sighs> the future doesn't look so good for the poor people or just us average folks. Anyway, uh, you can expect shipment April 2017. Ben, I'm worried about your future. You can easily outsource ice cream. No, you can't. No, you can. No. Not the way I make it. That's true. Um, I could just send my kids to the store and say, son, go get some ice cream. Outsource. Well, well, that's buying ice cream. That's not making ice cream. Right. But how many outsourced ice cream maker I mean how many ice cream makers are we going to need in the future if one robot can make every kind of ice cream yeah but it's it's an art form man like, I know what would happen though is the robot would come buy your ice cream I would like to buy some ice cream and it would buy your ice cream it would then take your recipe and then the robot makes your recipe boom you're out of business anyway I'm just trying to help you make sure you focus on it get the right product don't sell to robots don't got it <laughs> Mental note, don't sell the robots. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Your mind and uh, the impact it has on life. And when, I, when I'm coaching people in my um, practice, I, the mind really is one of the first big barriers that has to, has to be evaluated, at least, in order to create some movement, in order to create a change. Um, it's not just trying to teach them skills. I can teach couples to talk. I can get them communicating. I can get them to maybe hold off before they just blow up and listen to somebody. But there are certain thoughts that are constantly stewing in our lives or in our minds, and those thoughts may um, deeply impact what you do, what you feel. So my basic belief as a coach is that our thinking, whether it's conscious or subconscious thoughts, whether you're actually intentionally Thinking about the thought or whether it's just something that's, you know, some undercurrent belief that you have, it's going to generate feeling. Thoughts tend to generate feelings. Feelings tend to generate doing what you do. And doing tends to generate what you're becoming. And if what you're becoming doesn't jive with what you want to become, then you're going to be out of integrity, which will generate feeling, right? And thoughts. So the pattern goes thinking, feeling, doing, becoming. Over and over and over. So here's some thoughts that you want to make sure you you don't have running through your operating system. And and just start questioning it. Like, what made me go off right here? Why did I start to act this way? That's what I was doing, yelling, screaming, whatever, um, just pulling away, ignoring my family or my spouse. Why was I doing that? Go back to the feeling behind it. There was something I was feeling. By the way, motivation, for those that want to understand motivation, uh, motivation is the feeling that generates the doing, right? Um, so that's there's power in understanding the, uh, the feeling and the doing 
There's also power, also maybe more power in understanding the thinking behind the feeling. Um, here's an example. Do you tend to have a thought that you don't have a choice in life? You don't have a choice. I've got to do it. Don't even have a choice. I mean, I don't even want to do it, but I've got to go do this job or I've got to go, you know, take my kids to here and this place and that place. So if that is the thought that's underlying it um, and the belief, it's going to generate a feeling. And the feeling is probably obligated, forced. It's going to be an uglier feeling if you don't have a choice to do something, which will then generate how you go do it. Think of how you do something you didn't want to do. So a kid that throws a tantrum up to an adult that, you know, ruins a trip that they didn't even want to go on, um, it, it's going to be acted out. So if you do, you have a thought process that you're trapped. You don't want to do what you're doing. You don't want to be in the life you want to be. You're in. You don't want to be in the marriage you, you're in. Another thought that a lot of people have is that life is easy or life should be easy. And then they're amazed every time it's not easy. So if that's the way that you if you have a belief that life should be easy and yours isn't, then you then you obviously think I got to change my life. I got to change it. And you might feel misery even though you got a pretty good life. It's just normal. It's hard. Another belief is um, that uh, the way it is now is the way it's always going to be, right? So if it's bad now, some people believe it's just, it's just that's your life. It's always going to be bad. Or do you believe, you know what? No, life's going to change. Just give it a couple of years. Give it a month. Give it a two. Give it a week. It's going to get better. Do you also believe that uh, everyone else has it better than you do? Right? There's people that believe everyone else just has it better than you do. Um, some people have a belief system that it's just too late, a value system, maybe something in their mind like it's too late. You know, it's too late to change my job. It's too late to become something that I want to become. Some call it just bad luck. You know, I just got bad luck. Bad luck. Everything I touch is just goes bad. Um, the, some, some think of this optimist. You know, you know what? The situation, it's it's going to get better. Some have that automatic, you know, reply. Some, no, 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 it's just going to be worse. But whatever your view is, it's yours. And if you, you're going to keep suffering the feelings that come from that thinking. And you're going to keep suffering the doing or the lack of doing that come from those feelings and those thoughts. So when I coach somebody, I always ask them to go back and try to evaluate the thought or the, the thought uh, the feeling, kind of the mood that drives you to keep doing what you're doing. And any time you spend looking at it is valuable. Trust me. Any time you spend recognizing the thought that's preceding a lot of these feelings you have, the better off you're going to have. You're going to actually find a way to turn this around. That's the Coach's Corner, folks. Fairly basic stuff, eh? Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, our interviews, the really the best method of picking who is most qualified for the job. For most of us, the prospect of a, you know, a job interview can be intimidating and even a bit overwhelming. What if our resume doesn't reflect experience or what if our personality simply doesn't click with the person who's interviewing us? 
In order to nail a job, you must nail an interview. And Dr. Anna Hartley, an expert on personality, judgment, and measurement, joins us this morning to share a little bit about her experiences with interviewing uh, for a job and what happened when she found that she had the wrong personality for the job. Thanks uh, for being with us today. Dr. Anna Hartley, thanks. Thank you so much. Good to have you here. And uh, and talking about this, talk about your uh, the, the way you came to discuss this topic of the wrong personality. It was actually in a job interview, wasn't it? So I had a job interview for a certain position at a company. I can't say what company, but um, yeah, they, they uh, gave me a structured personality interview where they asked me questions about my personality. Wow. Just one by one, they just started... But you're a personality expert. I mean, your expertise is in studying personality and, I guess, social social psychology. Yes. Yeah, I literally wrote my dissertation on personality assessment, so it's kind of an <laughs> interesting experience. How wild. Personality screening. <laughs> and, and so you, you've just gone to some uh, job interview, which even how you describe how they, they kind of got you to get to the interview – it wasn't a real personal experience anyway. No, yeah, I got I got kind of an automated email that said, call this toll-free number to set up your interview. So wow. that, as you can see, it was off to a great start right there. <laughs> I really felt warm. It felt warm and welcoming. And then they sat down with you and started uh, going through a personality kind of interview. Talk about how that works. What is What is that? I mean, I've heard of behavioral interviewing, but what is personality interviewing like? structured interview, which meant that the interviewer had to ask specific questions, and I could only answer in certain ways. So I could only answer yes or no or um, of a certain option, um, as she indicated. So, for example, she said, are you a responsible person? And I would either be able to answer yes or no, but I couldn't answer anything in between. Wow. And what is the goal here? I guess this is to actually see if you have the right personality that they need for this job. Yeah, I mean, I've thought a lot about it. I think it's partly that, and I think it's partly to see how you do in these kind of intense, structured interview formats where you kind of have to – it's almost a forced choice format where you have to choose between two options, which aren't great. So, for example, one of the things that asked me was – are you the most responsible person you know? Um, and I couldn't, you know, I had to answer um, uh, yes or no. And that can, you know, that's like kind of a murky question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what if you don't know anybody? <laughs> then I guess you are by default. <laughs> Nailed it. That's an easy one. And I guess, are they sitting there on their laptop uh, then typing in each answer? It, it was a phone interview, so I assume so. I mean, I heard her typing in the background, so yeah, I think so. How interesting. And I guess at the end of this, um, what happened? I guess you were you were advised that you had the wrong personality for the job? <laughs> well, she asked, me a serious, she asked me a whole series of questions, which were all kind of increasingly frustrating as it went on, like, are you perfect? And then um, she told me at the end, of the end of the interview that they would get back to me in three to five business days, which in and of itself is kind of hilarious, just three to five business days. <laughs> um, and then I got an email, just an automated email saying that um, I wasn't a good fit for the job, uh, that I did not pass their personality screening. But you were more than qualified, more than able, educated enough. You had the skills, the tools to do the job. 
you just were rejected by personality. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And uh, that was the funny thing. They actually never asked me about my qualifications for the job. Oh, they didn't? But they apparently knew of you because they basically headhunted you. Um, well, they have my resume. Yeah. Yeah. So. Wow. Now, so um, is this, do you do you know, is this a fairly normal practice now in interviewing? Um, I've never had a personality interview quite like that. Um, I think all of these interviews get at your personality in various ways. I mean, I've definitely taken personality questionnaires for interviews before, um, just on the computer or on paper. But I think the other, you know, the other really popular way you mentioned before is behavioral interviewing, yeah. which... I mean, that's asking about your personality in specific contexts as revealed through your behavior. And I think that might be a better way of getting at one's personality in a less obvious way. Yeah, that's one where they'll say, give me an example of where you had to go against what your boss was saying or something. Absolutely. And then then they want to see how you behave and uh, how you explain your behavior. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, one of the themes of my research and some of the research coming out of personality is that it's much better revealed um, by what you do in specific situations rather than just asking something about somebody <laughs> about their personality traits. Yeah. Well, it's almost like they're, they're and it's a little, I don't know. It, um, it's almost like deceptive in a way. It's, it's like putting you on a lie detector <laughs> instead of just, <laughs> instead of just letting you, express and if if they're forcing you into these yes or no kind of questions it seems like it would be better to to let people just talk and their personality would come out their behavior would come out it just seems like it's a better device to understand someone yeah yeah i agree i mean or just let them watch the bachelor and then just watch how they react <laughs> you know what i mean that would work too that sounds like a good personality. <laughs> there. Talk about um, personality just in your in the job. I mean, it's a funny thing because we, we tend to not know. We hire these people. They come in and then the next thing we know, they drive us crazy. <laughs> and personality is a hard thing really to, to peg, isn't it? And we we might get skills, we get the resume, but it's the personality that might be the hardest thing to work with. Absolutely, yeah. And I think looking at people's behavior and context, you learn so much about them. Like, you know, what does somebody do in the most difficult social situations? What do they do in the most benign, friendly social situations? And that's, I think, when personality is best revealed. That's why, I mean, I think it makes sense that these companies are shifting towards behavioral interviewing so they can really get a read on that. Yeah. Is it let me ask you this, can you train personality or is it is it the is it what we're born with? Um, I think we are I mean part of personality is certainly genetic, you know, in terms of our temperament. But um but no, I mean like personality changes over time and they used to think that personality was set like plaster. That's what everybody said, set like plaster um after age thirty. But now we're finding that personality changes throughout your lifespan and it changes in response to situations and the situations you encounter. I mean, like the situations you're going to encounter are going to change as well. So I think you can certainly change your personality, especially if you can identify how you're behaving in the most problematic situations. Yeah. And is it, uh, yeah, because you, you could start to see if, if you're not getting the results you need, you probably ought to reevaluate what 
your your personality. You probably ought to evaluate, reevaluate you and what's going on. What, how do you keep getting fired? What is it about your personality that might impact it? Can can people assess their own personality, or do they need you know others to help them do that? I think yeah. I mean, I think you need help from something. You know, whether it's an assessment or somebody else kind of giving you a little bit of advice. Yeah, what do you say, you know, maybe if you're getting fired from every job, it's like, you know, maybe that's the time to go to a friend or a coworker who you trust and say, what do you think this is about? You know, do you think there's something I could be doing better? Yeah, it's um, it's such a it's such a crazy science. And I look at businesses and I sit there and I think they're doing a personality assessment. Probably some com- some company has come from the outside, pitched them on the idea that this is brilliant. We will get in and assess each of your jobs, each of your, you know, different uh, workplaces and figure out the ideal personality type. But it, it seems like that's just a myth. There, is there an ideal personality type for a job or is there just one that's more – I mean you could be an introvert and love cells. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, mean, so, I think – Go ahead. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, I think like – I don't know if there's a personality type, but I think certainly qualities for certain jobs are great to have. You know, I think like flexibility, for example, is something that is probably valued in many jobs. But I don't know if there's a personality type because, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, you know, sometimes introverts excel. You know, like I know introverts who are journalists. Yeah. And they love that. Um, So it really just I think it just depends on who you are and how flexible you're willing to be and if you can gain those specific qualities that are good for the job. Right. And in the end, um, I mean, I guess we we had a guest on yesterday that was just talking about the fact that uh, even in social or in uh, psycho- psychology and a lot of the research we're doing, we know it's always kind of been the nature-nurture argument. And because nurture was – or nature was always harder historically to figure out, genetics and, mm. and DNA and everything, that was more difficult than just figuring out – some of the influences dad or mom may have directly, we tend to overlook genetics. But uh, humans are complex, and we're even more complex than our personality. Like you were saying, my personality may be affected by the fact that, you know, someone in my family near and dear to me is dying. Mm. And that may adjust Mm -hmm. me for a year. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, our personalities change. And, you know, I think that in terms of, yeah, I mean, in terms of um, environment versus genetics, I mean, like, as, you know, more of a psychologist and less, you know, on the bio, um, biological side of things, I just focus on what I can measure. And we can we can measure things in people's environments and how they react to them. Right. Is what what should we be doing as, as you've kind of learned going through this type of interview process? Are there things that we could do to better prepare for for this this type of interview um, or any interview in order to kind of be more relaxed, be more who we are, and maybe somehow convey that? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the hard thing to do is actually just to not be nervous. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I think, like, the more and more you do these things, you just realize that, I mean, these things are really low stakes because you never know what's going to happen. I mean, you can do a fantastic job and feel like you really knocked it out of the park, and then you don't get called back. It's just it's so out of your control that I think the best thing to do is just to relax, to answer honestly, 
you know, with that with that very strange interview that I had, I just I just tried to answer honestly because, you know, when that when they asked me if I was the best, I said no, because I'm not the best. I mean I yeah. don't really know what that question means, but I think to say anything else is doing a disservice to yourself, um, just because you don't want to get a job that's not a good fit for you and that you got um, dishonestly. Um, so I think, yeah, my best advice for that is just realize that it's really low stakes and it's out of your control and just try to be relaxed and yourself. And, and, you know, of course, you know, you won't want to do all the normal things like your research on the company beforehand so you yeah. can get a sense for, yeah. I mean, that's great advice. You don't, you don't want to lie and then get the job and then be like, what the heck? These guys are strange. <laughs> It's totally true. Absolutely. Dr. Yeah. Anna Hartley, we appreciate you and that great uh, great work. And the article is in Psychology Today, Wrong Personality for the Job. If you just go to psychologytoday.com and um, look up Anna Hartley, great information for all of us. Stick, uh, stick to it. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Continue what other things we should be doing and could be doing to, um, you know, make sure that we understand ourselves and are more self-aware of our own lives. You know, we're the only person we've got. So everything depends on our ability to understand ourselves. Stick with us. We'll come back, continue the discussion. friends to the Matt Townsend show. You know, jobs, they're hard to get, right? And for the last 10 years or so, there's a lot of pressure. The economy was falling apart. Everybody was closing doors. You needed to get a job. So then all of a sudden you go jump in on a job and you're thinking, ah, I'll get another one when life gets better. So be careful when you are uh, doing when you're going in for your interview, you don't need to be psyched out, but you could just just be yourself. Like I remember Terry's interview for this wonderful job. Wasn't that great? Remember you were sweating all over? Oh, was I had a jacket on? Oh, did you? Yeah. Were you wearing a jacket? It was kind of a cold day. I wore my leather jacket because I, I thought it was more yeah. of a power type jacket. Walked in, sat down, and just sat there and comfortably explained to you. Man, it was kind of a mansplain situation. It was weird. I was just telling you all how to do your jobs. Uh-huh complimenting you, but it was kind of backhanded, too. And then I remember your jacket kept making squeaking noises. Well, it does. Yeah, a little bit. I had a nice tie on. Did you? Yeah, I dressed up. I don't remember the tie. Yeah. I just remember your upper lip shaking and your your sweating profusely. I wasn't, like, intimidated. I figured I've done this before. You guys are the ones coming to me, so. But I do remember um, that it was weird. (laughs) Because you would every once in a while like throw in a Marvel comic no, comment. No, I was careful not to mention anything of that. I didn't want to cause any problems. To infinity and beyond. No, I, I never, remember when I you never, said that. I never said that. That was awkward. Nope, nope. Those were good times. That years ago. It was a year ago. Like three years ago. One calendar year. One really long year. <laughs> it felt like three. <laughs> Well, you're killing it. You're killing it now. Um, okay. This is one of the greatest moments, too, is when uh, we did hire Terry on, we had to get him a cubicle because today is cubicle oh, yeah. day. I've never had 
a desk of my own. I still don't, but I never had a place where I could go sit and yeah. do work. All the radio stations I worked at before, you just kind of worked in the studio and then left. Wow. But yeah. you, you have a nice little setup because you're not out with everyone else. You kind of have your own little office all the, suite. All the students here at uh, BYU Broadcasting sit in pods. Yeah. So it's like three desks sort of together. So three it's, peas. It's a cubicle without the walls mm-hmm. type of situation. And it's kind of loud. And yeah. Someone, hosts of shows, will just walk out into the middle of the the area of uh, that sort of office space and just start talking really loudly. Start about, yelling. Yeah, making fun of- Where's uh, my other, script? Yeah, that kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm clear in the back. Yeah. Down a hallway, yeah. back doors just around the corner so uh, I can make quick escapes if I it. need to. And you just go back there. And, and you're people... so far away, no one's going to walk there. No. I mean, unless it, you got to get your steps It in. is a deterrent. People go, wow, you're really far. You've called me on like I the desk phone that I, I never touched. I to have your office location. I look over at that phone and go, who's calling me? Mine is right at the intersection of the main hallways. Yeah. So I got people coming from everywhere. Yeah. They walk down the hallway and they're staring right at you as you're sitting at your desk. And they bring, it's like they'll bring a tour through mm. and my door will be shut and the whole tour will stop and everyone will look. Like peek in the window. Yeah, look at the monkey. What's he doing? <laughs> Hi. Why is he on his desk? That's weird. Yeah, why is his head? Why is he asleep? <laughs> What's that mark on his forehead? Um, so today's Cubicle Day. So in order to celebrate Cubicle Day, we need to celebrate one of the greatest moments in movie history involving a cubicle. Hmm. The name of the movie, Office Space. This is a, an interaction between Bill Lumberg. Who was the boss. The boss. And Milton Wadhams, who is the guy... That's been there forever that no one quite knows what he does. There's some sort of paperwork error as to why he hasn't been fired. He should have been fired like years ago. He doesn't have the right personality. Not sure if he gets paid. And uh, he just keep they just kind of keep moving him all over the place because nobody knows exactly who he's responsible for. Hi, Milton. What's happening? Um, I'm going to have to ask you to go ahead and move your desk again. So if you could go ahead and get it as far back against that wall as possible, that would be great. No. No, 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 no. Poor Milton has, like, no voice. At this point, they moved it from a cubicle into a storage closet. (laughs) And you go in there and there's pencils. People are walking in constantly to grab their, you know. Their stuff. He has to, like, turn around, I think, at one point and hand some people some paper clips. Poor Milton. They ask him to push his desk. But then by the end of the movie, he's in the basement. And they keep just pushing him further and further. And then somebody takes his stapler. He has a red stapler. Does and he, that's when he comes unhinged. Yeah, you and don't he, take a stapler. He burns the office down. And he loves a good stapler. <laughs> that's why you got to watch out for those personalities, folks. Yes. You never. You it's got to be a good match. I, I went to a. Uh, I interviewed at a. What are they? They're an internet marketing company. Uh huh. And what they did, this company was they had a contract with a com- with several companies. One of them, Directv. And what they would do is they would set up. A altern- alternate directtv.com website. Really? So that when you'd search for directtv, you would get one. There's like one, two, three, and they would have two. One of them's the actual directtv. The other two, they would operate. Oh, it's a trick. And then so you basically in the search, you would end up at one of those three sites. Directtv would either get you or this marketing firm would get you, and then they would funnel you back to directtv. Oh, Wow. 
Yeah. So I'm like, is that why every search that scammy? I do, I always end up at the same place? Maybe it just seemed odd because you, when it comes down to it, you don't know who owns the website when it's even the name of the company dot com. It could be anybody. And they're just working with that other company to make sure they get all referrals funneled back to them. That is a travesty. Yeah. So they're asking me all this stuff about social media. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I tweet. I put stuff on the web. I've I no tweeted idea. before. I've tweeted. <laughs> and I Facebook all the time. And that's probably what it sounded like, too. I thought I sounded pretty convincing. But yeah, you could tell about halfway through, the interviewer just put her feet up on the desk. And so you worked in sports radio before. And I went, yeah. And he goes, How was, what was that like? I'm like, okay, now you're asking me stuff that has nothing okay. to do with it. I got it. Now I got the Can job. I go now? Are we done? <laughs> Is that when you knew she gave up on you? Yeah. So I just started, you know, I had some time. I was, it's scary looking for a job, right? You were chasing. I mean, it's hard. You yeah. Then all of a sudden you could even feel like a failure. Like, why is this not happening? Why am I not getting yeah, a job? Family members were really concerned about it. What did they say? Like, My they mom would call me you. and she goes, I just want you to know that we love you. And I'm like, Mom, I'm okay. I don't need you to, you know, have an we intervention. Don't think you're a mess. Hopefully she's not listening Mom? and gets mad. Uh, my wife was concerned. She'd yeah. call me every once in a while. I was trying to stay just uh, – I'm going to go learn something new. Right, I'm trying cool. to stay positive, trying to, to keep doing something every day. And now that I look back at it, I should have just played video games. But you were growing your beard out, and it did no. reach your belly button. I shaved every – no, I didn't shave. I just let it grow. Who cares? I shaved on Saturdays, yeah. once a week. Saturday's the special day. It's the day you get ready for Sunday. Well, basically, yeah. So you'd shave up <laughs> on Saturday, and then you'd just kind of get all hairy the rest of the week. Yeah. But then weren't you walk, also walking around your neighborhood in slippers muttering to yourself? No, it was not. Okay. I thought that was In fact, most, most of my neighbors had no idea. That's what I Because my hours are weird and I'm home in the middle of the afternoon anyways, yeah. norm, most days. <laughs> this is, by the way, this job, you get up very early to get here and you leave early and this is kind of a nice deal for you because you're not, you're not working as much and you get a ton of time with your little fella. Right. To, That's a bonus. To beat him up with a sponge with I, a, a pool. It's a pool noodle, okay? Sure. You make it sound like it's so much more than no, what no, no, it no. is. Tell the uh, welfare authorities, the child welfare authorities, that <laughs> you don't need to defend anything to me. So the, the the personality in a workplace is very important. Super important. If you, you like you talked about, you hire somebody and then they're just uh, yeah. they're annoying. What do you do? You fire them. Well, you can try to find a reason, I guess. Some but. people can't. Sometimes you can't fire people. No. I mean, there are people that could exist in an organization for 20 years. Simply because nobody could fire them. As I found out in like state government offices, yeah. those type of they're able to – they're just – it's a hard process to get someone out of a company right. because there's been lawsuits and you want to make sure you have everything covered and there's documentation. And then somewhere along the line, somebody doesn't document something, so you got to start over the start process. Start over. Do it again. It could, I, I, I shared a story in here. It said it would take up to six months in most federal government offices to separate an employee, to fire somebody, to get, physically get them so they're not working in on the payroll well, And some employees – wouldn't leave. So you would think, well, I'll just be obnoxious or do something so annoying they'll have to leave, but they don't. They have appeals processes. So it just makes it go longer and longer. And there's there's like a point where it's like this person can't function here. Yeah. It's hard too when you're counting down and you know that I've only got 13 more years till <laughs> my pension I'm kicks fully in, right? vested. Yeah. And that's a scary thing when you're counting down and your years are that far away. Yeah. Maybe... And then there's private companies where they just walk in the door and say, you're fired. You're fired. Sorry. Which is what happened to me. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of a slap in the face, too. You're like, whoa, hey, what, what happened? I thought I just, okay. Did they hear about the lightsaber thing? 
Oh, they probably thought that was funny. Oh, I thought and that was way before that. That's why they the lightsaber you. thing really kicked in when I was unemployed. Oh yeah, because you had more time. I had that and more aggression. More aggression. <laughs> Daddy's getting his aggression out playing Come lightsaber. Here. Let's get all this Come anger here, out. Son. Oh, that's fun. Good times. Um, okay, so let me ask you this. Yes. Uh, you've heard of a grammar Nazi? I have. Uh, do you know any? I live with one sort of. Your son? My wife. Okay. Uh, new research out. So if you know a grammar Nazi, pay attention. This story is critically important. Grammar Nazi, you know, someone who constantly points out your typos, your grammatical errors, the things that they don't like mm-hmm. that you're saying. Um, according to a latest study, um, these type of people are generally less open and more likely to judge you for your mistakes, more negatively uh, than anyone else. And so the research shows we don't like these people, and on average, these people aren't seen positively. They're not likable. It seems interesting, like, duh. You're constantly correcting people. Mm -hmm. That's not something, an attribute people are going to think, that's positive, I like that. I'm just trying to help you. I need that in my daily life. Your grammar is horrible. The study was carried out by researchers at the University of Michigan, and it is the first to show that an individual's personality traits can actually determine how one reacts to typos and grammatical errors. They found that extroverted people are much more likely to overlook typos and grammatical errors, whereas introverted people were more likely to judge the person who makes such errors more negatively because of them. Hmm. These people are, they might just be introverted, and they go in their mind and they go to their happy place, and they're like, oh, I, there's a correction. I could, I could share my insight and help fix this person's horrible grammar. <laughs> and I man, have skills to share. Let me show you. So this may be defining the battle between the, um, the introvert and the extrovert. The introvert is silently critiquing, and the extrovert is just spewing language errors. (laughs) Well, there comes a point where if you're trained to look for errors, and you see them, and you can point them out, you can see something's misspelled, it annoys people. Things must be fixed. No. You know, so they want to to correct and help other people get to that point in life where they can fix these problems. No, just shush. They're helping. Keep it in. Keep it in. You're an introvert. Don't say anything. I'm an introvert. Nobody believes that. But I am. Right. I don't, I don't critique people's grammar, though. As you're standing in front of mass crowds giving public speeches several times a month. Mm-hmm. And on the radio. And then I sit alone in my car in heaven. Just decompress? Listening to Barry Manilow. <sighs> well, Barry's good. Life is good. Life is good. Hey, uh, we'll take a break, uh, come back, and continue um, our discussions, folks. When it comes down to it, uh, we all got to get better, right? The goal of the show is to help you see the good in the world, learn the latest and greatest research, and do something with it. Stick with us. We'll have fun. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we we sit on this uh, great big ball of mud flying through space, spinning like crazy. And yet, uh, and, and you know, we can be totally caught up in our jobs. You know what it feels like to be worried about the three meetings you have this morning on the way to work. 
Plus, you got a ball game at night. You don't know how you're going to get there because uh, and your wife's got that meeting tonight. And so at times are, it's complicated. It's hard. And yet uh, – and we're supposed to now take time and set it aside to figure out who we are, our personality. We're supposed to know what we're like. I'm supposed to go in and figure out if I'm an introvert or an extrovert and still get to work and get to that meeting and read that report before the meeting. Or I could read it at night, but that's the time I'm supposed to be with my kids. So we are in this tangled world where we have so many conflicted demands on us and um, conflicting demands on us that we want to be closer to our family, and yet we are supposed to finish that report. We want to, you know, succeed and excel in our job, except so-and-so is always uh, needing my advice at work. And it's not my job to give so-and-so the advice. It's enough to drive you crazy, isn't it? Do you ever just feel like, I can't do this anymore? I am, I'm losing it. I mean, I think that's the universal issue. Carl Jung once said, that which is most personal is most universal. So if you feel stressed out, completely done, you're normal. And maybe one of the things we all could do is just figure out um, some, I don't know what you call it, a, a mantra, but really more just some perspective. What's the default perspective that helps you get back to what you need to do and who you really are? Just the simple idea that, you know what, life is more important than any of this. It's uh, It's more important than the stress I'm feeling and tomorrow is another day. It's going to get better if we just can get through right now. Don't spend your entire day worrying about tomorrow or even yesterday. Maybe we need to find a way in the moment to get centered and figure out what you are about. So if I asked you, if I brought a a microphone, came right up to you and put the microphone in your face and asked you, "What what is it that you are really about on this earth? What would your answer be? If you are here to become the best possible person you can be, you know, with uh, morals and and values and love, if that's what you're supposed to be, you need to know that. If you don't have an answer to the question, why are you here on this earth and what is the most important thing you want to become, then you're just going to keep spinning and everything's going to get harder. And saying no will be harder because everyone else will be pushing for their yeses to take place. We all have to take some time and figure out why are we here and what are we really doing? So what is your answer to that? If you don't have one, spend some time today figuring that out. Nietzsche said there's a great – it's easy to say yes. It's easy to say no when there's a deeper yes burning inside. It's easier to say no to people when you know what your yeses are. And if you don't know what your life is about and what your world is about and why you are here and what matters most, then you're going to end up getting out of integrity. And that hurts. So just today, start figuring out the answer to that question. What is the – what is your purpose? What is it that if you're not here to deliver, the rest of us lose out on? Or your family, your friends, your, your people around you would actually lose. Interesting stuff. A little Coach's Corner for you. We'll take a break. Come back. Continue the discussion. Next hour, stick with us. We'll be back in just a few minutes. 